0: Wonderful time of year, isn't it? You know, I'm always just really thankful this time of year. Really thankful that I married someone who is far more organized and so much better with gifts and tradition than I am or ever was. And one of my favorite things to do is, is, is gather our four children as we, we gather around the tree and they're opening their presents. And I just, I just look on in awe and wonder. In awe and wonder mostly because I'm just as surprised by what they're opening up as they are. Is there any other dads living that same boat, right? It's just like, this is great. We did great this year. Wow, good job, honey. You know, we, we really, really killed it. She's great like that. And, you know, one of the other fun traditions that Julie started with our kids is decorating gingerbread houses. Now, we originally just started with one gingerbread house, and all the kids would gather around with all you know, the frosting and the candy. And there was always a little bit of tension about what would go where and how it would get decorated. And so this year, Julie found out the gingerbread houses were on sale. She's like, I'm just going to get one for each. We're going to get three gingerbread houses for all of our older kids, and then there won't be any tension about who gets decorated. Everybody gets to do their own thing. It's going to be great, right? And now we didn't get one for our our two-year-old Molly because Julia assumed, well, her attention span's kind of short anyway. Maybe she can help one of the older kids, and then, uh, you know, she'll get distracted and she'll move on, right? Wrong. She plopped herself down right at the table, and she was waiting for that gingerbread house to show up in front of her. And when it did not, cue, end of the world level drama, right? It's snot and crying and, oh, I cannot believe that this is, this is happening to me. You would have thought we burned her favorite stuffed animal and left her out in the cold to sleep all night, you know, right? She was convinced, like, my parents don't love me anymore. It's clear, I don't even have a home, a gingerbread home, to be clear, but no home is what she had, right? Now, you know, I'd love to say, I'm, I'm preaching this sermon today, i love to say, you know, this is where we can stop and teach some patience, some sharing. This is our fourth two-year-old, okay? Yeah, I know better. We just got creative really, really fast, okay? So you know what we did? We found that we had a hot glue gun and a pack of graham crackers just a few minutes later and we've got a gingerbread house just for Molly. It's, I, I, and you know what? We kind of killed it. I thought we did pretty amazing. I mean, you can look in the picture right here. You can barely tell which one was thrown together in just a few minutes, barely, not at all. Right, and it's the one on the left. Just in case you're still looking for, like, which one doesn't belong, I don't see it. And I know for some of you might be looking for the Pinterest plans for this, so I'll just I'll give you one hot tip. Velveeta cheese boxes are almost the exact same dimensions as a graham cracker. So you cut that sucker up, it provides some much-needed structural integrity to go along with all that glue that's spilling out the side. I call that ice. You know, like when your gutters freeze over a little bit. That's what that's squeezing out there. That's ice. It's a feature, not a problem. Okay. Oh, you know, the decor and the gifts and the tradition, it's, it's all a lot of fun. It is a season full of wonder. And, and, and I'm so grateful that it's not just a season full of wonder in the natural, it's a season of wonder full of, uh, of wonder in the supernatural. And today I want to talk uh, a little bit about and, and unpack this idea of the wonder of God's love as we explore the gift of spiritual sonship. Okay, now ladies, don't, don't get lost when I say spiritual sonship or spiritual sons today. Again, this is not, this doesn't exclude anybody. This is men and women. This is actually rooted in Jesus as the son of God, all right? But it includes all of us. So when you hear that idea, spiritual sonship, that's for you too. That's for all of us. All right, so as we look at the Christmas story, which we're going to get to today, we're going to see that this Christmas story, it's a story of love. It's actually a love story that God's been writing since the very beginning, and 1 John 4, uh, says some amazing things about God's love, and it's actually uh, really related to this Christmas story. In 1 John 4, 9 through 10, it says this. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we're going to come back to this, these verses in a, in a little bit, and I'll pack a little bit more of this, but... The the idea here is this understanding God sent his son so that we could be restored to right relationship with our father, be given a brand new identity. So we're given this gift of spiritual sonship with our father. And as his sons and daughters, he wants us to know that we're fully loved, valued, and accepted by him. We belong to him and he belongs to us. See, our spiritual sonship, it's it's helpful actually in so many ways. We feel safe. We don't question our relationship with God. We feel understood and seen. and, And from this place of knowing that, we can have confidence as we interact with the world around us and interact with others. And that sounds amazing, right? Fully loved, fully known. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that it's really easy for our circumstances to derail us from living like spiritual sons. I mean, take, take my daughter Molly's reaction, right? <clears throat> Great example. She felt overlooked, unseen, undervalued. How many of you have struggled with some of those same things? Overlooked, undervalued, and unseen. I know I have. We've all been there. See, we've been made sons and daughters, but often we don't act like it. See, the wonder of God's love is that it's so powerful and it should change us. So the question that we're asking today is how do we steward our spiritual sonship so we don't feel like we're left on the outside? But before we dive into that, I wanna stop and ask the Holy Spirit to come and be our teacher. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for you here. We thank you that you, you guide us, you teach us, you show us and point us to the Father and to Jesus. We ask that you do that now, that you come, that you be our teacher, that you reveal in us how we can steward this gift of sonship in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. See, we were all built to belong, right? God designed us to be in relationship. He built us for love. We're in relationship with him. We're in relationship with others. We're all actually born into a natural family to get started, right? We're all sons and daughters of somebody. Now, I recognize for some of us, our, our, we had a great family experience. And for others, our natural family, it, it wasn't so great. And let me say, as a father... I'm so deeply sorry to those of you who have had an experience in your normal family of loss, of hurt, of abuse. And I wanna tell you, there is hope. See, God has a bigger, bigger plan for family because he actually invites us into his spiritual family as well. See, God has a, a design for family, both the natural family and the spiritual family, where we would actually be in that place be completely safe, be completely loved, connected, known, seen, and supported. So when we come into the family of God, we become his sons and daughters. We belong to him, and we're filled with his love, and it transforms and empowers us for everyday life. And see, yet, many of us, we struggle to live as spiritual sons. Instead, we often resort to living as spiritual orphans. I want to clarify that, that statement too because we, think we hear orphan and there's lots of imagery from Little Orphan Annie and the musical Oliver to, to all the other things that go along with that, right? I understand an orphan is somebody without a parent. When I'm speaking of spiritual orphans, I'm speaking of a specific set of behaviors and a way of thinking okay and and this isn't something that i just just came up with this uh there was a the late author jack frost actually wrote and spoke a lot about this idea of spiritual sonship and spiritual slavery and so a lot of that 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 language originally comes from him but what do i mean when i say orphan thinking so when we talk about this this thing we talk about orphan thinking so when we embrace orphan thinking and tendencies we often feel like we don't belong We believe we have to act right, dress right, do everything right so we can be loved and accepted. We don't feel loved or valued or honored or accepted by God. When we have this type of thinking, we often feel pressure to perform and do lots of work, right? Orphan thinking is rooted in fear. This is important to understand, this root of fear. What do I mean by that? It comes from fear of failure, fear of being an outsider, fear of not being enough, fear of being judged, fear of things not being fair. This is a problem, right? so you, you can see actually on this, this chart up here, if, if you've been taking a look at this, it actually comes from that uh, Jack Frost book, Spiritual Slavery to Spiritual Sonship. It's actually part of a larger chart. And I just wanted to highlight a few of those. And you can see that, that column, right? Spiritual orphans, and the column that says spiritual sons. And then those, those, those topics kind of along the left there that kind of are like, well, how does each one of those two uh, interact with that topic, right? So pick, say, uh, image of God on the very first one there. Well, as spiritual orphans... The first thing you're going to see, the image you have of God is as a master, right? So, so he's, he's somebody who oversees. But if you're a spiritual son, when you think of God and you see God as this image of God, it's seeing God as a loving father. And can you see how the interaction, my interaction and relationship with God is going to look different based on how I view him in those two scenarios? So uh, take need for approval, right? Strive for the praise and approval and acceptance of man. That's a spiritual orphan, right? And I would say end of God as well. But as a spiritual son, I understand I'm totally accepted in God's love. I'm justified by his grace. It's a gift. See, it completely changes how I interact with that, that thing. Again, another, what is peer relationships? I'll just highlight that last one there. Because this, I think, is something we often all deal with. When we think of peer relationships, like one-on-one to others, we see competition. We see rival. We see jealousy towards others and their success and position. But as spiritual sons, it's humility and unity. We value others and we're able to rejoice in their blessing and success. Let me tell you, a telltale, telltale sign in your life of orphan thinking is when you see others succeed and you feel like it's taking away something from yourself. I know I felt that. I know I've experienced and walked through that. This is the the idea of what we're talking about. So when we look at the story of Jesus, we see that he came so that our relationship could be made right, and we could live in this new reality of our spiritual sonship. So we wanna learn to steward this spiritual sonship, living in the reality of God's wonderful love. And if we wanna understand the significance of the Christmas story, and of Jesus' whole purpose in coming, we have to understand the bigger picture that's happening in the Bible, right? Right? It all starts all the way back in Genesis. And we have to look at God's original design for humanity and how that became broken. Because see, then we can see why Jesus' birth was such a wonderful answer to the problem of that brokenness, okay? I know you're like, Genesis, like the gospel. Christmas stories in in the Gospels, Mike. What are you doing? Okay, I understand. The Christmas story starts starts way earlier. That's why we're jumping back, because you're going to see as we walk through this. So stick with me, because it's so important we understand this foundational piece, because it's really important to how we live out our life, right? So we're going to go back and look at this uh, this bigger story of the Bible. And we're going to go back to Adam and Eve and see how they went from spiritual sonship to spiritual orphans. And we're gonna discover the implications of that in the rest of the biblical story and even in our story today. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to summarize uh, kind of this, this initial story. But you can find this in Genesis, the first three chapters of Genesis, right? Let me go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, those first three chapters there. And so in Genesis 1, we see Adam and Eve. They've been given everything that they needed, right? God's provided for them. He's even given them like identity and purpose. It says that God created them in his image as his image bearers, right? He meant to be uh, his image bearers and reflect his image onto all those on the earth. That, that, so they had this. They were given also authority, authority over everything on the earth. As his sons and daughters in God's family with him as the father, they were living in the wonder of God's love for them. But now Satan enters the picture. Another player's on the field. Just as today, Satan comes in the picture. What do we know about Satan? Well, actually, we're told that Satan was once in a place of high authority and honor in God's heavenly rule. Right? But he rejected that because he wanted to have his own glory and his own power. And because of that rejection, of his rejection of that, God cast him out from his presence. He could no longer be in God's presence. See, Satan was the very first spiritual orphan. And that orphan thinking led him to be jealous. So he looks at God's creation and humanity, this beloved creation that he has. He says, I want to infect them with the same orphan thinking that I have is that he wants, to, he wants to infect all of those things. And one of the primary ways that Satan loves to operate is he takes something that God has created, something beautiful, and he twists it into something to use for his evil motives. And so as we look uh, at, at, what, at, at what he's doing, we read in Genesis 3 that Satan begins to tempt Adam and Eve. And he says, hey, you need to eat the, the fruit of this tree over here. It was the one tree that God said, don't eat of that tree. Don't, you can have everything else. Just don't take that one. And what Satan tells them is like, hey, if you eat that, you will be just like God. Now, this is crazy because this this twisting that he's doing, it convinces them they don't have something that God says they already have. See how he he twists that up? God already said they're his image bearers. And suddenly they believe we're missing out on something. God's been, been holding us back from our true potential. I think God, maybe he's been fearful of us being just like him. That's the kind of way they're going. They're already made image bearers. God already said that. He gave them identity and suddenly they're believing they don't have it and they need to do this. Do you hear the orphan thinking in that? See, they begin to believe they're missing out. They're being overlooked. Someone owed them a gingerbread house right now. (laughs) That's where they're at. That thinking, it, it led them to believe God, this God who'd love them, provided everything for them was really just holding out on them. See, these tendrils of fear, they begin to seep into their thinking. Remember, at the heart of orphan thinking is a spirit of fear. And fear leads to mistrust, and it feeds that orphan thinking. And it drives Adam and Eve to fear that God's been lying to them. What if God wasn't who he said he was? And, and despite all evidence to the contrary, they're willing to believe it. You know, the only pl- time they could believe that, the only reason they could believe it, was because they stepped out of their sonship and into orphan thinking. They wouldn't have believed it if they'd stayed in a mindset of, of a son. But instead, as soon as they began to think like an, with that orphan thinking, it came over. They're willing to believe that. So those tendrils of fear, they found their place to attach themselves when they abandoned that spiritual sonship. And this is how fear has this sneaky way of seeping into our thought patterns. Well, what happened? Did Adam and Eve become like God? No, of course not. We know from the story that instead it was disobedience. Disobedience introduced them to sin, and the very first thing they feel when they, hit and they interact with sin is shame and fear, right? Shame, they have to cover up their nakedness because no longer are they pure, right? They're hiding from God. They're fearful because they know that what they've done was wrong. They didn't suddenly gain, you know, omnipotence and be like God in that way. Suddenly they're actually were f- their image-bearing ability was flawed. It did the very opposite. No longer were their lives able to be true image-bearers of the Father. <sighs> so, this is what happens. Orphan thinking leads them to missing out on God's very best for their lives. And what did it do? It got them kicked out of the garden, which meant they were kicked out of God's presence because they could no longer operate as sons and daughters. It made them forget who they were. <clears throat> See, as sons, God tells us who we are. He gives us identity. But when sin enters the picture, humanity immediately begins to look at what they are not. God always points to who we are. Sin tells us who we're not. See, sin displaced us from spiritual sonship. It flawed our ability to reflect God in the world around us. It let fear and shame and guilt begin to rule in place of God's perfect love and joy and peace. And we're going to see that this problem of sin and orphan thinking, it, it, it... flows out through the rest of the biblical story. We see it plague the Israelites, God's chosen people, as they live in this continual cycle of of trying to do what's right and then failing, and then God implements this, the law and the sacrificial system, but the problem was the law and the sacrificial system that they lived under, it was it was always temporary. So the sacrifice was only temporary put them in right position with God. But then that orphan thinking would creep back in and there'd be failure. They'd have to do it all over again because nothing was powerful enough to actually free them from the state of being not right yet with God. And we see that just continues to happen all throughout the Old Testament. And really the story of the Old Testament is the story that man could not save himself. We actually needed somebody more powerful to free us from the slavery of sin and fear and restore our connection of spiritual sonship with the Father. Okay, you made it you you still with me? You made it this far, it's like, where's Christmas? (laughs) Haven't heard any baby in a manger yet, let's go. I'm getting there, I promise. See, this is really important because this whole thing now is the backdrop upon which Jesus enters the picture in the Christmas story. And we're gonna go now to the Christmas story. And understand, okay, last week we focused on Luke 1, right? We talked about the stories of Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary. And today, I want to pick up where Julie left off last week, and we're going to look at the story from Luke 2. This is the classic Christmas story, right? Mary and Joseph, they travel to Bethlehem while they're there. Time comes for her to give birth. And we're going to actually watch the rest of the Bible Project video that Julie started last week. So we're going to watch the Christmas story of Luke 2 played out in the Bible Project video. This is actually where they're taking that from. So instead of reading it, we're actually going to watch Luke 2. And I just want to remind you, if you like these Bible Project videos, if they're helpful to you, I encourage you, check them out. They're free on YouTube, they're free on the Bible Project's website, and they have lots and lots of different topics that cover throughout the Bible. They're a great resource if you just want to gain some additional understanding uh, of all different parts of the Bible. So let's all turn our attention to
1: this video. God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiance Joseph had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There were so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which of course freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate, because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby, and they'll know that it's the Messiah because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds, who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place, and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive, born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly, I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story and that's the point. He is showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order Upside down.
0: So the world has been waiting for the promised Savior to restore what was lost through Adam and Eve, and this is where Jesus makes his entry to the world as that promised Messiah. Now this is a, a divine act of God's love. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now this isn't love like the emotion or love like like a feeling. See, this is love as a person. You see, Jesus is God's love personified. Jesus is the divine act of God's love. Now, we might expect, you know, when the Son of God comes, we might expect like a glorious, you know, palace and and all the messengers and the trumpets to come. But again, God wants to illustrate what his kingdom really looks like. He wants to illustrate this upside-down kingdom that he's introducing into the world. And so Jesus is born in the most humble of places to a humble couple in Bethlehem. I can't imagine that as, as a father to, to like having gone through four births, having to do that in, in like the stable. Man, that no. I can't imagine. Mary and Joseph, they've had to face some incredible challenges just to get here, and then this is the culmination of that. And we see in the whole story, uh, especially with Mary and Joseph, that, that throughout this, this Christmas story, there's this this thinking, this orphan thinking, trying to derail the story as it comes along, right? Because both Mary and Joseph, they struggled to believe how they belong in such an important part of God's story. They struggled to know how, they, how to see themselves as loved and valued and honored or accepted by God. See, they needed Jesus just as much as the rest of us. He was making it clear. And God's answer along the way, every time, was trust me, his love, his peace, his joy. The same thing for the shepherds, right? The shepherds, it says that, you know, the, the angels, you know, they, they burst onto the scene in their field in the middle of the night. I mean, they were terrified. It says they, it really freaked them out, right? Because suddenly God's presence is just like bathed on top of them. Well, what, why, why is this going to be so terrifying? Well, humanity doesn't know what to do with God's presence. Because remember, we were kicked out of God's presence uh, in the garden. So suddenly God's presence comes, and they're not sure what to do. They're terrified. They're afraid because they don't know how to be sons yet. But God's love answers with peace, with love, with joy. And instead, they're they're, like, well, let's go check this out. Okay. And they come back with awe and wonder at what God is doing. See, they didn't expect the angels to come into their field that night. At least I certainly hope not. I don't think this was a normal occurrence, right, for those shepherds. Surely not. But this is the upside-down kingdom at play, right? Right? Often when God moves, it looks different than what we expect. And that's what's happening here. In this upside down kingdom, we gain position and power and freedom only when we first humbly submit to God's divine love. Let's read some more about this love. I'm going to go back to 1 John 4, and we're going to read just a little bit more than we did at the beginning. This is 1 John 4, 9 through 10, and 16 through 18. This is all about God's love right here. So hear what it says about this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment In this world, we're like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, God shows his wonderful love by sending his son as a sacrifice so that we could be free, so we could be his sons restored to right relationship with God. This grip of fear. Uh, and sin and fear on the world, it needed an answer that was big enough to restore what was stolen by the enemy. It needed the only answer that could transform an orphan heart. It needed the Father's love. It's the only answer. And God is love, and it says there's no fear in love, right? Because perfect love casts out fear, right? Fear is, at that, is that root uh, thing in an orphan thinking, Right? But who is Jesus? Who do we say Jesus was? Jesus is love, right? So Jesus is the perfect love that casts out fear. So it's through Jesus that we actually can be free from fear, that we can live as sons and daughters. This is an incredible message. This whole thing is about belonging in God's family. And I want to read from John 1. This is verses 12 and 13, and it says some things to say about being children of God. It says, to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They're reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So to all who believe him and accept him, he gives the right to become children of God. We become his spiritual sons, and now we get to live in this new reality. See, it was God who chose to love us first, not the other way around. It was an act of his grace And every one of us needs the answer of his love love, in order to write the story of spiritual sonship in our lives. His love means that we belong. This is not an exclusive thing, right? It's available to every single person and every single one of us gets to bring every fear, every worry, every hurt, every injustice and submit it to the love of God. See, we were built to belong. We were built to be part of God's family. This is good news. This is the gospel message. See, Jesus is the gospel message. He's good news to everyone. And, and I know we still can struggle, though, with this orphan thinking. We can struggle with falling back in those ways. It, it can be, like, really quick, too. That's how crazy it is. We can wake up feeling pretty good. I'm feeling like a pretty good son today. And then, you know, like, your, your spouse says something that kind of just angers you a little bit, kind of triggers you. Maybe your coworker says something that you're just like... Oh, I'm just not sure I can deal with you today. And suddenly you're like thinking about all the ways I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna get them right. I just wanna smack in the back of the head. Oh, right? It doesn't take much. We just, we, we begin to get down to this, this, this pathway of orphan thinking and suddenly, I don't think I'm thinking like a son anymore. That's not good. But God has some answers for us. And I, wonder, I wanna read here, what do we do when we, when we run into that place? I wanna read here from Galatians 4, 6, and 7. And it talks about that. And we're gonna talk some, some steps that can help us. It says, so that we would know we are his true children, God released the spirit of sonship into our hearts, moving us to cry out intimately, my father, my true father. Now we're no longer living like slaves under the law, but we enjoy being God's very own sons and daughters. And because we're his, we can access everything our father has. For we are heirs because of what God has done. There are some amazingly important things that are right here in part of this passage. And I want to point out three things, three things that can help us when we find ourselves falling into that ways of, of orphan thinking. And the first thing is what it says here in verse six is that God released the spirit of sonship into our heart. So it's God releases the spirit of sonship. That's step one, understanding it's a gift. So we just have to ask for it. If we try to earn it, we're actually doing the orphan thinking in order to get into sonship. It doesn't work. We have to accept his his gift of grace, his gift of sonship. So as God says, releases that, right? God releases and then we respond. It says, it moves us to cry out intimately, my father, my true father. Now, why does it say that? See, when we get into this this place of orphan thinking, what it does is it, it begins to have authority over our thoughts, our emotions, our actions. It sits up here. But when I acknowledge who the father is, it pushes that aside and suddenly the, no, I need the father here. So my response is putting the father back in his place, back in the appropriate place for him to, to let me be a son. Orphan thinking can't rule our thoughts and we can still think like a son. That's a problem. So God releases and then we respond. And the next one's really simple. We receive, right? Well, what does it say? It says, because we're his, we can access Everything our Father has, because we're heirs of what God has done. See, in, in another verse of the Bible, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ. It's because of Jesus we are heirs of the Father, and we have access to everything that He has for us. So this this all plays out. God releases, we respond, we receive. See, I, I have to I have to do this too. I have I have to come back to that when I get the, those into those waves of orphan thinking. You know, recently. Uh, I was beginning to feel overwhelmed by, it was a challenging season of, of work and relationships and responsibilities. And I found myself just frustrated, kind of just grumbling about everything. And I'd be looking around and see all the people who didn't have to do the things that I had to do. And boy, I was just resented them. <sighs> Why do they get to do that, God? How's come they don't have to deal with the things that I have to deal with. That's not fair. Orphan thinking was overruling all. God has some things to say, of course, about that. But you know what I had to do? I had to stop long enough to listen to him. So when I was finally able to stop long enough for him to get a word in, he just asked me a question. He asked me who I was. I know the right answer. I was a little snarky about it, but I knew the right answer. I'm a son. I know that. You have to tell me again. Now, probably because I was in a snarky mindset, the response that I heard in my head was like, are you, though? Are you? I don't know. He was much more gracious with me than that, but I think that was in the place where I was at. But see, what he did was he, he interrupted that space for me. And he invited me back into the free gift that he had. And, and when I stepped outside the bubble of that orphan thinking long enough to be like, I don't want this, I had to accept that gift from him. But I had to respond too. See, I had to respond by saying, God, I don't, I don't want to continue in this place. I don't want orphan thinking to be ruling over anything God Father, you rule over that. I give that to you. See, I had, I had to respond by acknowledging him back in the right space in my life. And as I did that, I, I began to feel, you know, some of the baggage of orphan thinking, it just began to slip away, right? That anxiety and jealousy and anger and fear, it began to be replaced with what? With God's inheritance that I was now able to receive, his peace and his joy and his love began to be put back in the right place of where I was thinking as as that mindset began to be restored of sonship. So when we're faced with those problems that attack our sonship, remember, you can release, respond, receive. God releases, we respond, we receive. It's not complicated. God didn't make it complicated. He made it really simple. It's another reason it's really good news. But what did Jesus bring into the world that changes this position of fear and orphan thinking. Let's just bring all of this together now as we close up. What did he bring? He didn't bring military or political power, right? He didn't fight for our rights in the courts. See, those are all tools for earthly battles. But Jesus was fighting a cosmic battle. There was a bigger battle that was going on. It had been ongoing, as we saw, since the beginning of creation. And to win this battle, he needed to bring the big guns. He needed to be God's greatest weapon. So he brought us to find love. Jesus came. See, our our orphan thinking doesn't know how to feel loved or valued or honored. Instead of accepting that free gift of God's love and sonship, we believe we have to earn it, right? We have to do all the right things so that we can be accepted. But it's Jesus who gave us a brand new identity. And that means we're loved, we're valued, and we're accepted by God. His salvation restores us to direct connection with the Father as his sons and daughters. We talk about being saved when we talk about salvation. That's what it means. It's a restoration of connection of our sonship. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Uh, How can we look at us as a a church and say, well, how can we we help put that into some reality? Well, it it makes more, our mission statement makes a lot more sense when you understand it in the light of God's love and this greater story that God's writing throughout the Bible. And what's our mission statement? Let's read it. Encounter love, experience transformation, and extend the miraculous. See, it's love that allows us to experience the transformation that restores our identity as spiritual sons and daughters. And from that place, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to give it away, to extend the miraculous. It's part of God's story. It's not just something that we we did to sound good. It's continuing God's story. Your life is a continuation of the Christmas story that we celebrate in this season because when we learn to steward our sonship, we're stewarding God's redemption story that he started in the beginning of creation and it will continue on past us and beyond us. See, you carry the same hope today as a baby boy in a manger did 2,000 years ago. So let's live like sons and daughters who know just how wondrous our father's love really is. Would you stand up? As we pray us out today, I want you to practice those things we've been talking about. See, when we, when we worship in the worship team cups and lead us in, in worship today, this is our opportunity to respond. We already know God's extended this gift of sonship, right? Worship is an opportunity to respond to our father, to put him in the right place and to receive all the things that he has for us. That's how I want you to view it today. As sons and daughters, worshiping a father that you know loves you with everything that he has. Let's worship today. And we'll come back up and do some ministry a little bit after that. Amen.